0: said what shall we say the kingdom of god is like or what parable shall we use to describe it it is like a mustard seed which is the smallest of all seeds on earth yet when planted it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade with many similar parables jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand he did not say anything to them without using a parable but when he was alone with his disciples he explained everything this is god's word you may be seated As I mentioned earlier, there's an outline inside of that bulletin, the announcement sheet that you can use as we go through our final lesson uh, in this series that we're calling This Is Us. We're going to close it uh, down uh, today. This next Sunday, uh, we're going to do kind of a one-off type sermon. Uh, Recently, I've I've, actually I shouldn't say recently, it's been over the last several months, I've been asked by uh, various folk, uh, of different ages, young and middle-aged, and uh, so older folk. The, the question, what happens when you die? What happens, what can you expect as a disciple of Jesus? And so this next Sunday morning, we're going to be, uh, in a one-off sermon, uh, be, be thinking about that. But this morning, we want to, to talk about the irrepressible nature of the kingdom of God. And let's begin with a, with a word of prayer, asking God to bless us as we get into this, uh, this text. Father, it is for us more than a confession of truth. It is our posture in life that you are the creator of heaven and earth. You are the creator of all of us. You continually dazzle us with your power, and you astound us with your grace and your love and your mercy. This morning we come to this text, deals with a tiny seed becoming a huge bush, and we believe that in it you are disclosing a great truth, a great truth about your kingdom. And so in these next minutes, Father, we're asking you, in the name of Jesus, to give us patience and alertness and discernment and great courage, Father, to listen syllable by syllable, word by word, sound by sound, to the words of this text. We are asking the ancient request in prayer, Father, for ears to hear and eyes to see in order to have a heart that follows And we pray this in Jesus' name, and all the church said. I don't know the name of the book. It was probably 30, 35 years ago. that I. And I think it was a detective book. And I don't even remember the name of the, the book, the author, even what the plot was. But what I remember is that the main character in the book had a description of a sandwich. And in this description, he said, there are two kinds of sandwiches in the world the kind that you eat over a sink, and the kind you don't. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. I'm a over-the-sink kind of man. But do you know the story of how sandwiches came about? There was a fellow by the name of John Montague. He was an Englishman in the middle of the 18th century, around 1750, 1760 or so, he was, he was a, a fanatical card player, loved to play cards, and sometimes he would gamble, sometimes it was not gambling, but he loved card games, and he would get so enthralled with the game and so focused on the game that he would be at the table for hours and hours and hours playing these card games, and he'd get hungry, but because of his love of the game, he didn't want to get up and leave the game, didn't want to leave the table, so he would call the cook over, and he would ask the cook to go back to the kitchen, get a piece of salted beef, and put it between two pieces of toast. And the cook would do it, and he was able to, to eat a sandwich there at the table. His hands wouldn't get greasy and mess up the cards, but he was able to eat and, and, and to be satisfied and to continue playing. Well, he liked it so much that he began to do it all the time. It became his habit. And it became so, I, I guess, maybe annoying to his friends that they, they, they decided that they were going to name that piece of meat between two pieces of toast. And it didn't sound good to call it the John Montague, but he was the fourth Earl of Sandwich. And so they started calling it the Sandwich. Now, let me tell you something about that story. It has nothing to do with the sermon this morning. <laughs> but you're never going to forget the origin, the story of the origin of the sandwich, are you? That's the power of a story. Stories stick. They build this visual, this image in our our mind. The way that we come to an understanding of reality through thinking is basically through ideas, which are assumptions about reality, or images, which are the medium in which those ideas are transmitted into our thinking. And that's why Jesus tells stories. Because stories stick. They help us to remember In Luke chapter 10, it's a story about a Samaritan who goes and helps a Jewish man who's been robbed on the side of the road. And what's the name of that story? The Good Samaritan. And then there's the story about this kid who decides that he's better off with his inheritance than he is with his father. And he goes off into a far country and he comes back and there's an older brother and it's in Luke chapter 15. And what's the name of that story? The prodigal son. And then over in Matthew chapter 25, there is this parable that Jesus tells about being ready, because you don't know when, when God is going to come back in judgment, and it's a story about these, these, these ten virgins or bridesmaids, and five of them were what? Wise, and five of them were foolish. The reason that Jesus told parables was not just to get the story to stick, but it was to, to get people to slow down. How many times have, have you been reading the Bible or reading any kind of a book and you're reading and reading and reading all of a sudden you realize you can't remember what was on the last page or the page before that? Now there is a place for that kind of learning of reading and memorizing and, 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 and taking sentences apart and understanding definitions. But there's also a place in, in our learning as disciples of Jesus what the kingdom of God is like for the story. And that's why Jesus tells this story. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus is by the Sea of Galilee. And He's he's teaching a lot of people. He's teaching about the kingdom of God. And in verse 30, He says, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Sort of thinking out loud, these people, they need the kingdom of God. And not only do they need it, but they need to understand what it's like. So what shall we say? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? And so Jesus tells a parable to slow them down. To get them to think. To get them to, to, to slow down and to ponder what this story or what this, this picture, this image is all about. And Jesus says, you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? When you think of kingdom, you probably don't think of a mustard seed. But that is what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a mustard seed. It's minuscule. Of all the seeds that you run into day by day, all the seeds in our land, it is the smallest. But you know what you can do with that seed? You can take it, you can take that little seed that you, I mean, if you just breathe the wrong way, it's going to fly off of your finger. You can take that seed and put your finger in the ground to make a little hole, put the seed in, cover it up, and guess what happens? In verse 32, he says, it grows. And it becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. In in other words, the kingdom of God may start off small, but don't you underestimate just because it's small and it's tiny and it's minuscule, at least at the very beginning, don't you ever underestimate its power. Do not underestimate the kingdom of God because it has this irrepressible power of growth that is inherent right at the very core of its being. You cannot suppress. You cannot restrain the kingdom of God. You can't put an end to it. It grows and it takes over. You know, if Jesus was was telling this story today in the southeast, maybe in Georgia, he might have said the kingdom of God is like kudzu. You know what the nickname of kudzu is in the south? The vine that ate the south. It's everywhere. You can't repress it. You cannot cannot push it back. The kudzu just takes over. And that's what he's saying about the kingdom of God. The nature of the kingdom of God is to grow exponentially far beyond how it began. And it has the power to do that. There is something about the mustard seed that helps us to understand the kingdom of God and how it exists in the world. I want to give you two things to think about at the end of this sermon series on This Is Us. When we think about us as a family like no other, one of the things that we think about is this, that we are the people re-globalizing God. We are the people re-globalizing God. The parable of the mustard seed becomes real. It's not just a story, but it becomes real at the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus changes the seed in the metaphor a little bit. It goes from mustard to wheat, but the principle is the same. In John 12, he says, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains what? Alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus, after the resurrection, ascends to heaven, but he gives some instructions to his disciples in the book of Acts. This is where those instructions are found. He says, but you will receive, in verse 8, power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in, say it, Jerusalem, and then all Judea and Samaria, the uh, region surrounding Jerusalem, and then to the ends of the what? That's the plan. You begin very small. In the city of Jerusalem, it's going to spread to Judea and Samaria, and you keep going until you find yourself preaching to people in the ends of the earth. And he's taken up into heaven. And then ten days later, it's Pentecost. Ironic. It's the, the, the feast celebrating the harvest and seeds and fruit. It's Pentecost. The Holy Spirit descends and people hear Peter preach the gospel of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And a handful of disciples Twelve plus their friends in that upper room in Acts 1 becomes 3,000 disciples in one day. And it just keeps on spreading and growing. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, at the end of that, that section, it says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There is a move to suppress it. There is a, a move to, to, to repress the preaching of the apostles, and to put a stop to the church. It failed. Because like a mustard seed, there is a power within it that cannot be repressed. And we read in chapter 5, verse 4, that the number of men who believed grew to about how many? How many? 5,000. And that's just the men. There is more pushback But we read at chapter 6, verse 7, that the Word of God spread. It's growing. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and even now a large number of priests became obedient in the faith. There is more attempts to suppress what is irrepressible, but it gets violent now. And Stephen, Stephen is killed for his faith, and he becomes the very first Christian martyr in the history of the world. Christians, because of the death of Stephen, they begin to leave Jerusalem. But there is this irrepressible nature to the church. So in chapter 8, verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. This man by the name of Saul, who hates the church, is killing Christians and persecuting the church, on the road to Damascus, is overcome with the gospel. His name eventually is changed to Paul, and he goes all over the world preaching the gospel and planting churches in all the major known cities of of the world. And at the end of his life, he is in Rome. And we uh, we read at the end of Acts chapter 28 that for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It is not now just a Jewish movement. What started out as a mustard seed in Jerusalem of just a handful of individuals has now become a movement. The gospel has gone out to all people throughout the world. We are the people who are re-globalizing God in the world. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, you remember what happened there. That's In that moment where we nudged God out of our consciousness by saying, I'd like to be like God, sin entered into the world and death entered into the world and what has happened is that we now have a world where God, His own creation, is being pushed out and pushed out and pushed out and pushed out. But beginning in in Acts chapter 1, There is a movement now to reintroduce God into the world through Jesus Christ, through the resurrection, through the gospel, and through the Spirit. And God says that there is a plan. And the plan is that one day there would come one from the line of David, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, the father of David, to restore everything. And you go back to Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 11, the wolf is going to live with the lamb. The leopard is going to lie down with the goat, the calf, and the lion, and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the kingdom, for the, or excuse me, for the earth, will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What Isaiah is saying is that this earth was created by God and it reflected God and it was good. But then sin entered the world, but God is not going to destroy the world and and, and all of that without the gospel coming in to reverse everything. And one day, the knowledge of God will cover the earth as will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea and that is, is is part of the mission of what it means to be a church family in San Antonio, Texas. We are the people we, we fill the world with the knowledge of God wherever we go. That's what we do and that that's that, that is, that's, that's that, that's our mission. That is our identity. We are the people that are reglobalizing God in His own creation. But the second thing, the gospel means that people are supposed to be with God. People are not supposed to be lost. That is not the way it's supposed to be. And I think we lose sight of that at times. We want our church to be just us. People we're comfortable with. People we've known a long time. We like our church. We like our people. We're comfortable. And sometimes we need to be reminded because we forget that God loves all people. God wants heaven to be huge. He's not satisfied with just 99 out of the 100. Remember that parable. He goes and seeks for that one lost sheep. A question we'll end with is this Do you know why you're here today? Do you know why you're here? You don't deserve to be here. You don't deserve to be here at all. Neither do I. I didn't earn anything in order to be here as a child of God and a worshiper of God. You didn't earn it either. You may be surprised by this, but I'm not here this morning because I'm great. I'm not all that great. And neither are you. We are here because we are loved by a cross-bearing God. There's this wonderful passage in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul says that God is demonstrating His own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, while we were still alienated, while we were, were still God's enemies, while we were still separated, God chose to love. While we decided that we wanted to go our own way and do our own thing and make our own decisions, God demonstrated His love for us, even when we didn't know that we needed it. God sent His Son to die for us. Now that's a pretty astounding passage when you think about it. You think about the great sacrifices that have been made throughout time in history. But here is the one in which there was this man without blemish, this man without a single iniquity or transgression to his name. And not only that, he was the most sensitive man who ever lived. I mean, he was the man who connected to to women and to men and to children. And because he was sensitive, the more painful it was when he was betrayed. And so here is this love that God is demonstrating to this world that has rejected Him, and says it will be in this love or nothing for reconciliation. And man, we think about that, and we think, you know, as Jeff talked about uh, communion this morning, and others in class this morning, you think about all of that, and you just go, how how could somebody love like that? How, how could somebody do that for not just all the people in this room, but the people in this city and the people all over the world and the people who still, to this day, are rejecting Him? How could that love exist? And that is, that is a daunting thing to think about. But there's something just as daunting, maybe not even more daunting. Five verses later, Paul says, God pours that kind of love into our hearts in order for us to share that message to do the loving thing in sharing our lives to to make the sacrifices that need to be made in order for people to come to understand what it is that god is doing in his creation as human beings we spend so much time trying to decipher why these events are taking place and describing it and and understanding it and knowing and all of these kinds of things. And listen, any 11-year-old kid with an iPhone can tell you what's happening in the world. You know what our job is? Our job is to tell people what God is doing about that. And to make that happen, His love is poured into our hearts. And we are participating in filling the earth again with the knowledge of God. And if not us, who? Who's going to do it? Who is going going to do it if not us? That's one of the reasons that we make it better. Like Jesus, we go around and we're doing good the way that Jesus did good. We're making it better. Not only that, we are the people who die to self in order to live for Him. We are denying our own desires and desiring our own will in order to find ourselves connected to a greater, a greater will. We are called to live up in our denial of self into the life of God. Not only that. But we we can do it because we have chosen to be unoffendable. As Christ reached out to to lepers, to a woman at a well, talking to a Syrophoenician woman, talking to a little sawed-off social misfit, chief tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus, all of these people offensive to those around them. The people of the gospel need to remember that they are not to be separated by the people who need the gospel one offense at a time. We also realize that it calls for service. Sometimes a service that is so significantly servant-hearted that, that it, it boggles our imagination at times. But we know that it's not about us. We also are the people that can make those kind of sacrifices because we know that there's a joy inherent in these kinds of sacrifices. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And we're not afraid to do it. Over and over, the message of the Bible. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This big task of taking this this country in order to make it reflect the presence of God, God is saying to Joshua, is it going into the promised land? He says, don't be afraid, but be courageous. Why? Because I am with you. And when we begin to say, you know what, there's nothing that's going to to separate me from people who need to hear the gospel. And I'm going to contextualize the words of the gospel in the doing of good. And people are going to see that in, in the kinds of sacrifices that we make in order for things to be better, and for the kingdom to grow, and not just remain a mustard seed, but become this, this bush in which all the birds of the air can perch. That there's great joy in that sacrifice. And that I don't have to be afraid, regardless of whatever might come our way. The universe is a perfectly safe place to be if God is inside of you. It may be that you need the prayers of your shepherds this morning and your church. It may be that you want to, to find yourself discovering that joy and sacrifice. It may be that, that you, you're not very good at relegating your desires to something other than what God has in store for you. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe there's just not a lot of joy. Maybe there's, maybe there's anything that you can imagine, because we're human. Maybe these things are standing in the way of you participating in the irrepressible kingdom of God as it fills the earth with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the seas. Whatever it might be, we, we want to pray about it. We want to be that mustard seed type church in this community, and in this world. Or it may be that you've never given your life to the Christ. It's time to do so. It's time to do so. It's time for you to dedicate your life through baptism to God, your sins washed away, Holy Spirit coming into your life, because you've confessed, I'm no longer the king of my life, but Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the king. And I'm tired in repentance. I'm tired of living the way that I have been living. And I'm ready to live for Him. That can happen this morning too. All we ask is you come down to the front and talk to these shepherds as we stand and we praise God together. In my life.